Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast fighting the banality of evil. Today we have Laura, Julia, Zoe, Bianca, and Kellen. Yes! And today we're talking about how things have been going since the Biden administration came into office. Um, Obviously, as leftists, we've been screaming about how Biden would never be the answer to our current crises. Still, it's time to talk about the specifics. Why is it absolutely bad? (laughs) Uh, And before anyone says shit to us, like, I mean, none of you would, but like, None of us are arguing that a Trump presidency is better because that's just insanity. Trump is an idiot and a fascist. However, Biden arguably can be even more evil on certain aspects because he has the competency and like the public approval of things, which we're going to get into in a little bit. So that's what we're talking about. That's where we're at. So first, I wanted to talk about his failure to cancel student debt, which if you weren't aware, was one of his uh, platform pieces when he was running for president. So at his recent town hall, which like truly praise be for whoever suggested that because it was just a hilarious shit show. I mean, depressing as fuck. But like, if you understand the government as a dysfunctional arm of capitalism, then it was like a really entertaining time. Um, his remarks cast doubt on his ability or willingness to confront this country's ballooning student loan crisis, because let us be very clear about the fact that Biden absolutely has the legal authority to use executive power to cancel all federal student debt. Congress granted this authority decades ago as part of the Higher Education Act. In fact, in response to the COVID pandemic, the Trump administration used that authority three different times to suspend payments and student loan interest. Yes, like, oh, it's so frustrating. And just to like jump in to clarify how some of this works, um, this is probably familiar to a lot of our listeners. Um, There are basically two different types of student loan debt. There's privately held debt and government debt. Government debt, um, which is exactly what it sounds like, where students borrow from the government, accounts for more than 90% of student loan debt. And that adds up to about $1.6 trillion. And it's quote unquote owned by the Department of Education. So yeah, lol. So uh, (laughs) that is why, like Laura was saying, Trump was able to suspend payments. It's basically just the creditor saying, hey, don't worry about paying me back for a while. It's like your landlord being like, I don't need rent for this month, which like I wish. But anyway, (laughs) Biden is the landlord in this context. He could make this all go away, but he won't. Um, And like, also, can I just say how absolutely wild it is that the United States makes citizens borrow money to get an education? Like, Just give people the money. It is for education. It is not that hard. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, we could go on a fucking rant about how public education, higher education in other countries with lower GDPs than ours work. And, you know, but but like, it's not going to maintaining U.S. supremacy in an imperialistic sense. So, like. Why would they care about it, right? (laughs) So 
sorry. (laughs) Feeling dark all the time. Anyway, adding to the confusion, Biden seemed unable to keep his own campaign pledges straight, lol, muddling his student debt cancellation proposals. His campaign had two distinct planks. One, which was an immediate cancellation of $10,000 for every borrower as a form of COVID relief. And two, the cancellation of all undergraduate student loans for debt holders who attended public universities and HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities and who earn up to $125,000 a year. Another thing I want to highlight is that Biden is part of the reason as to why student debt is such an issue currently. As a Delaware senator, he spent decades working closely with financial interests and expanding access to student loans while limiting borrower protections. Because if you didn't know, Delaware is like one of the more fucked up states when it comes to uh, ballooning wealth for the 1%. Delaware is basically a toll road with like three California pizza kitchens off of it and a tax haven. <laughs> exactly. yeah, it's that's literally Delaware. a tax shelter. That's a state. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, that's our take on Delaware. Fuck Delaware. Delaware is canceled. You heard it I here actually first. like love Delaware in a weird way, but that's fine. It's also- <laughs> Wait, like what part of Delaware? Yeah, I'm like, I need more information. I like write about the history of Delaware because it's such a weird state. Um, And so I had like a bizarre fondness for it. And again, it's like one toll road and and three California kitchens. And a tax haven. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. Yeah, I don't have a fondness for that part. Right. Yes. (sighs) So the next thing we want to talk about is how Biden bombed Syria and also failed to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, for me, these feel like they go hand in hand because they happened at the same time, essentially. So the airstrikes themselves should not really come as a surprise to anyone who has followed Biden's long career as a foreign policy hawk. Um, Syria is a f- perfect case in point using the quote-unquote legitimate outrage against Bashar al-Assad's genocidal policies to justify an intervention that only leads to more human suffering and a bigger geopolitical footprint for the U.S. military. Yeah, and like a valid question might be like, hey, why did these airstrikes happen? And, And by that I mean like, what was the purported reason for them happening? Because it seems like the answer is actually that the administration felt the need to like prove itself or whatever. But um, yeah, the reason that was given for the airstrike was that there was a series of attacks in Iraq, um, which may have been executed by Iran and which did not actually kill any Americans. And so the airstrike targeted um, what was apparently an Iranian militia group in Syria. Anyway, It's also worth noting that the Pentagon um, press secretary, whose name is John Kirby, and I resent that he shares a name with one of the cutest characters Nintendo ever created. (laughs) I always play as Kirby. Oh my God, we love Kirby. (laughs) Season of Itch, Kirby Sam podcast, not John Kirby. Queer coded character. Let's make Kirby t shirts that are just Season of the Bitch, and it's like (laughs) Kirby with a hammer and sickle. I love, I love that. that. I love it. <laughs> Someone draw it. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. But John Kirby, the Kirby that we hate, um, called the airstrikes defensive. That's Ew. a direct quote. And it's just like so laughable to me that the w- meaning of the word defensive has been stretched to mean that like 
bombing one country's citizens on another country's soil when we're not even technically at war with either country is defensive. Like it's just, it's just all such a joke. Uh, yeah. I mean, like as we know, we could do a whole fucking episode on how that whole impetus is about capitalism, but we digress because you know we gotta we gotta get through all the heinous activities of the Biden administration to date. Uh, so. You know, the speed with which Biden rammed through the Syria airstrikes stands in stark contrast to the other big news of the day, which was that Biden would defer to to the Senate parliamentarian who ruled that a minimum wage increase could not be included in the coronavirus relief bill. So to be clear, this means that Biden's administration said it would not use Vice President Kamala Harris's power as a as the president of the Senate to overrule the parliamentarian. As you probably know, raising the minimum wage is wildly popular, supported by a majority of Republicans and Democrats and leftists, obviously. I mean, for leftists, it's like $15. What are we talking about? But in the 2020 election, a $15 minimum wage ballot measure passed with 61% of the vote in Florida, even as Biden lost to Trump in the state. So we're left with a frustrating and disheartening reality. The Biden administration will charge through procedural hurdles to bomb a country while throwing its hands up at the first sign of resistance to raising the woefully low minimum wage, which has not been increased in 12 years, a.k.a. since 2009. It's 725 currently. Low-wage workers will continue to suffer the double abuse of risking their safety at public-facing jobs for poverty pay. Poverty pay without health insurance, probably. So they're, which means they're in the marketplace because they are not eligible for Medicaid. It's a whole fucked up thing. But anyway, globally, the people of Syria and elsewhere will, will continue to fear the might of the U.S. military, knowing full well that the U.S. government could be wielding its immense power to, for example, force pharmaceutical companies to equitably distribute vaccines across the world. Yeah. And just to like add on to what Laura said, like, I think as everybody listening to this podcast probably knows, like a $15 minimum wage is nowhere close to enough in much, much of the country. Um, If you do the math, if you're working 40 hours a week, that adds up to about 30K a year, which is just like a total joke if you're not a single person who has no major health issues and also no dependents. Um, And many places in the United States, it actually still is a total joke, even if you are a single person with no major health issues and no dependents. Like this shit that the raising to $15 an hour is the absolute minimum that the administration should be doing. And they're not even doing that. Exactly. So switching gears a little bit, uh, I also wanted to talk about the Biden administration's role in the molding of young minds in this country. Um, So educators across the country collectively celebrated (laughs) the end of Betsy DeVos's term where Biden was elected, when Biden was elected new president. Um, Even those of us who didn't support Biden's candidacy Candidacy. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Candidacy, baby. 
Okay. Real Freudian slip there. <laughs> we love to see it. It's fine. Uh, but anyway, even those of us that haven't supported Biden's candidacy, we're really pumped to see Betsy DeVos just fuck the hell off. Um, the Trump administration had not been kind to public education, with one ironic exception of waiving state testing during the coronavirus pandemic <laughs> in 2020. Credit so, where it's due. If people are listening that have the ability, please rescue Betsy DeVos's daughter. I'm very worried about her. Who, who's Betsy DeVos's daughter? Well, I don't know anything about her kids. Wait, you don't know about this? Okay, no. this is a tangent. I only know about... Um, the uh, Kellyanne Conway's daughter. Oh, yeah. That's oh, wait, that's daughter. what I was thinking of. Uh oh. Oh. Blind. Well, rescue all administration daughters. Oh, my. I literally just realized those are two different. I, I didn't know those were going to reveal this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> two white women causing chaos in America. You can't tell the difference. It's I fun. literally thought they were the same person. I'm now oh my like, God. I'm now galaxy brain. They give me the same vibes. It's like, yeah. The, yeah. I if get Betsy that. Boss has a daughter, though, rescue Rescue her, her too. Rescue. <laughs> The daughter's like like forty. <laughs> Rescue her, save her. Yeah. Um. Anyway. So anyway, <laughs> during his campaign, Biden ran on supporting youth rights in schools and reinvesting in public education. He nominated a Puerto Rican public educator from a working class background with strong beliefs about equity and justice. Michael Cardona as Secretary of Education. And yet, with a single high-stakes decision which mandates that states give standardized tests in 2021 during the multi-layered crises this country's in, he has quite truly knocked the wind out of every educator and student who dared to let their guard down. Um, and I want to quote directly from Stephanie Jones for a minute. Um, she is a Josiah Meigs Distinguished teaching professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Educational Theory and Practice. She teaches courses on teachers as writers, feminist theory and pedagogy, social class and poverty. And she puts forward a brief rundown of how this one decision undermines so much that Biden claimed his administration would be about. And again, it isn't surprising to us that Biden is fucking up, but still it's good to point out all the nitty gritty. So teachers unions have long argued against standardized testing and the way that test results are used for the evaluation of teachers in schools. Unions have also explicitly called for canceling standardized tests during the pandemic for obvious reasons that any educator could name in their sleep. Biden's administration explicitly disregards the collective knowledge, wisdom, pleas, and demands from unions and workers, aka teachers, in this high-stakes decision. Our country's children and youth have experienced persistently increasing levels of stress and anxiety related to school, including significantly increased anxiety around high-stakes testing compared to classroom-based tests for children as early as third grade, a.k.a. eight-year-olds. The pandemic has layered on even more challenging situations for children and teenagers and emergency room visits for mental health concerns increased by 24% for 5 to 11-year-olds and 31% for 12 to 17-year-olds from April to October of 2020. Standardized testing alone has produced mental health concerns for our young people for 20 years now, and we are in a massive public health social, and economic crisis that is now producing mental health concerns for our young people without testing. 
To mandate testing in the middle of this mental health crisis is to explicitly disregard what experts know about health and the well-being of children and youth. Investigative journalism has also revealed that the high financial cost of mandated standardized testing since it was written into the No Child Left Behind Act in 2001. The cost of testing and all the materials produced by the testing companies and other private corporations to align with the test has exploded over the past two decades, including a significant increase during the adoption of the Common Core in the Obama administration. State education budgets have been cut during the pandemic, while many schools have seen their costs go up for new and more stringent cleaning requirements and a variety of new materials and hardware that make remote learning even a possibility. Forcing states and districts to continue paying out millions of tax dollars to private corporations is the opposite of reinvesting in public education. This decision literally takes money out of the hands of local and state decision makers to do what they believe is best for their students. If decades of research on the negative effects of testing and the well-being of students isn't enough to decide to stop standardized testing, surely the idea that schools need money now more than now more than ever compared to the multi-billion dollar testing industry. And finally, standardized tests have been racist since the beginning. It is no surprise that test scores continue to produce a quote-unquote gap between racialized groups with black, brown, and indigenous students consistently scoring lower than white students. In fact, the intensification of using high-stakes testing in schools has exacerbated the already existing race and class inequities in education. Even the foundation of statistics itself, which has fueled a quote-unquote data-driven and testing agenda for education, is rooted in racism and eugenics. A mandate to continue standardized testing during a public health crisis that has disproportionately affected black communities, communities of color, indigenous communities, and poor communities advances racial injustice. Yeah, such good points all around. I think I just want to emphasize like just how much performance on standardized tests is affected by income level, like both the student's income level and how much funding the school gets. And then if it's a public school, those two things are the same because of property taxes. So I am actually quite shocked the Biden administration doesn't know about, well, if they know about it, they don't care. They're not acting on it in a way right, that they don't give a fuck. That. Yeah. Right. And it's like ironic because the Biden administration actually released a statement saying that, quote, state assessment and accountability systems play an important role in advancing educational equity, end quote. I like I don't know first of all I don't know what accountability systems mean like accountability of for what like it's funding that you, they didn't get like I don't really right. know did anyone else's school like bribe you to do well yeah my sister well not like do well but like do well so that like the school would look better like my yeah. sister got paid to take AP exams even like she, yeah well uh, we didn't get paid but they would like give us candy. They would like really coddle us of like, please actually try on these standardized tests. Like here's like chocolate bars and like, yeah, shit like that. Cause it's like, otherwise the school doesn't get funding. Yeah. It was like that. It was because like, it's not, it wasn't even like the scores the students got. It had to do with like the number of people who took AP exams, right? like affected how much funding my public school would get. And yeah, my sister got paid money to do it. And um, I wasn't paid because that was a thing that the school had agreed to after I'd graduated. But I like I remember I had teachers where they were like, if um, you take the AP exam, you get an automatic A on the final exam. 
like things like that. Yeah, that was like so common. Um, and I knew it had to do with like how my school would look in the eyes of like the people who had the money, you know, to allocate, just very cursed. But I think there's also another point to be made here about the political economy of testing companies. Um, these are facts from a 2014 article in The Atlantic, but I checked to make sure that they're still relevant because actually it has been six years since 2014, um, which is kind of wild. But the author who uh, is M Meredith Broussard reported that standardized tests come from one of three companies, which are CTB McGraw-Hill, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, or Pearson. And they also make the preparation materials for those same standardized tests. These are like the state standardized tests that they like uh, administrate to different grade levels. Um, but these three test manufacturers also make the textbooks, practice tests, and the example questions that then lead students to do better on the actual standardized tests because they've gotten the questions basically. Like Pearson in 2013 was under fire because they released a standardized test that contained a passage that was taken word for word out of one of their own practice books. So then it becomes clear that standardized testing like it obviously forces teachers to teach to the test and it's also skewed by whether schools have the resources to give students this highly specific preparation material. So all of this is to say that I like, I can't believe the Biden administration believes or put forth some statements saying that testing advances educational equity. No, but like, it's fine though, because Maddie Glacius on Twitter yesterday <laughs> Uh, said that actually standardized testing isn't racist, um, so it's it's cool. It's, it's cool, cool, guys. Um, I fucking question. hate this man. Yeah. Can Wait, we... did he delete the tweet or no? No, it's still. Up. Oh my god. Can <laughs> we <laughs> can we make Matt Iglesias an enemy of the pod? He definitely yeah. is a fucking enemy of the pod. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Literally, my he sucks. He sucks. The rant that I had about. Vox on our uh, on our fucking Supreme Court episode is is directly linked to how much I hate Matt Iglesias. <laughs> I have a friend that formerly worked at Vox and definitely shares the hatred of him. Yes. Yeah. He also signed the Harper's letter. So yeah. Like, oh my gosh. You know. <laughs> I forgot about the Harper's letter. Yeah, that was truly like an eon ago. That I got pulled out oh the God. annals of my mind. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, glad we're making it official, though. Matt Iglesias, you're an enemy of this podcast, um, <laughs> presumably because you're listening to this. Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So I also wanted to talk about Biden's prison policy so far. Um, he had a campaign promise in his platform to, quote, stop corporations from profiteering off of incarceration, um, which I think, you know, I agree that's a good goal, kind of the bare minimum. Um, but so he's received some positive press lately for this executive order that basically reverts to an Obama era order that the Justice Department will not renew their contracts with private prisons. Um, and this is not a small thing by any means. I think it's hard to overstate how far we've come in the mainstream public being aware of the horrors of private prisons. Um, but this is also far from the sweeping change that it's being portrayed as. 
Um, for one thing, this order doesn't close private prisons immediately. Some of these contracts don't expire for years. Um, so a lot of these facilities will still remain open for a long time. This also impacts only a really small subset of people incarcerated in the US. It's about 10% of people in federal prisons. Um, it doesn't apply to state contracts or to immigration detention facilities because those contracts are with the Department of Homeland Security rather than the Department of Justice. Another issue I just wanted to mention is restrictions on people who are incarcerated, many of which are enabled by contracts with private companies. So this is something that's exempt entirely from Biden's order. The Justice Department can't contract private prison companies to wholly manage an entire federal prison, but they still rely on private companies for things like food and prison commissary services phone calls, mail delivery, um, money transfers, if you wanna send funds to someone who's incarcerated. So what this means is that people in prison and their family and friends on the outside have to pay unbelievably high amounts to communicate, exchange money or purchase necessities, um, things like menstrual products and over-the-counter medication that are not provided to all people who are incarcerated. Um, and just as one example of how horrifically high these prices are, the private companies that provide prison phone services charge up to $25 per 15-minute phone call. So that's and just like, like an astronomical amount. Oh my amount. God. And it's like especially fucked up when you consider what people who are incarcerated are paid for their labor. Like in federal prisons, inmates can make literally as little as 12 cents an hour for the work that they do. So when you think about how many hours you have to work just to pay for a 15 minute phone call with your family, it's it's beyond inhumane. It's It's horrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And in some states, if you're working on like prison maintenance, like if you're doing janitorial work, you don't have to be paid at all. Um, so yeah, that is another terrible thing that this order obviously does not address. Um, so I wanted to bring this up because so far Biden has not been addressing these injustices. And in fact, in some cases, he's expanding them. So one thing I specifically wanted to point to is the Trump administ administration started this pilot program with a company called Smart Communications, um, very dystopian name. They basically send all prison mail to an outside facility where it's like vetted, they remove anything from it that's not the literal text of the mail, and then they digitize it so you receive it as like an email or a typed printout. So this basically means that people in prison who are part of this pilot program can no longer receive physical mail. Mail is one of the few means of communication that incarcerated folks have to the outside. It's a way they can receive books, newsletters, personal messages from family. Um, and Biden has decided to keep this contract. Um, so it was a pilot program. Now it's becoming more of a permanent thing. And the Federal Bureau of Prisons has also said that they want to expand this program. Um, so this could really set us on a path towards total elimination of paper mail in prisons and jails, which is a very concerning prospect. Um, it's already so difficult to send written materials into prisons. If you ever tried to send something to someone who's incarcerated, um, you'll know that if something is seen as like radical in any way by prison officials, it probably will not get in. Mm -hmm. um, and if you don't follow all of these different restrictions to the letter, it will also not get in. Um, and physical mail is just one of the few remaining ways of communication that doesn't necessarily cost a huge amount, which, like we've talked about, phone calls do. 
Um, so this contract with smart communications also is making it easier for prison officials to surveil communications and really limit what gets through. Um, this is obviously just one piece of overarching prison policy, but I do think it's a pretty important sign that the Biden administration is not necessarily planning to undo Trump's prison policies in these types of ways or to live up to Biden's own campaign promises. Um, another sort of related thing that I wanted to talk about is Biden's immigration policy so far. Um, so Biden has very quickly rolled back some of the most extreme Trump immigration policies, um, including the so-called Muslim ban, which is good. Like Trump unquestionably did some really extreme things on immigration. Um, and it's good to see some of those being rolled back. Um, and Biden is, at least for his first 100 days in office, reverting to Obama-era decision-making on deportation priorities. So basically, under Obama, the policy was to focus on deporting people who pose a threat to, quote, national security, border security, or public safety, unquote. Um, obviously, heavy quotes around all of those things. Those are very fucked up categories that are used in really horrible ways. Um, these policies tend to disproportionately target people of color, particularly black and brown men who are seen as sort of the most, quote, dangerous or criminal. Um, these priorities also include things labeled as gang related offenses, which for anyone who's familiar with how gang databases operate, basically can apply to almost any young black or brown man that law enforcement wants to target. Uh, there are many examples of people being labeled as gang members for something as small as wearing a particular colored shirt to school or to work. Um, and also of law enforcement just straight up lying, like writing in someone's arrest record that they admitted to being in a gang when they didn't at all. Um, obviously, there are a lot of issues, even with this sort of rolled back Obama era policy. But under Trump, the policy was even worse. Basically, the policy was to focus on deporting everyone, which caused more harm to more people, um, basically meaning that someone who had a really small conviction, like maybe a small drug possession conviction, who under Obama would possibly have just been left alone um, once they had served their criminal time or whatever that punishment was. Um, under Trump, that person would almost certainly be placed in immigration detention and the process started towards deportation. Um, so I do want to say, like, it's an improvement to see this move back towards fewer deportations. Um, but even after Biden issued this order, there have already been reports of people with low level convictions who supposedly should no longer be under scrutiny, still getting arrested by immigration authorities. Um, just last week in Queens, a man named Rocio Molina was arrested by ICE for convictions related to his immigration. So things like falsifying identity documents and crossing the border illegally, which people literally just have to do to survive when they're undocumented um, and are then used as excuses to deport them. So Rocio should not have been arrested under Biden's new priorities, but obviously ICE isn't even fully following those priorities. Um, and I think much like under Trump, it's ultimately going to be up to community members on the ground to really keep an eye on local law enforcement and make sure that these rules are being followed and trying to get public attention on it when they're not. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think something that's worth thinking about in this case, like, and in others, 
is to what degree ICE acts like an autonomous branch of the executive. Um, and I'm thinking about how like in New York this past summer when the M NYPD basically like doxed Bill de Blasio's daughter, de Blasio was still just like, they're out here trying their best. I'm not gonna take away their funding. Because like realistically, the NYPD <laughs> operates largely outside the control of the mayor or yeah. any civilian official in the city. Um, and I've just, I've been wondering like to what degree that's true of other agencies like Border mm -hmm. Patrol and ICE like they're clearly not following Biden's directives here and I'm like I'm not saying that to let Biden off the hook because like de Blasio he's still responsible for what these goons do and yeah. like ultimately mm -hmm. it's still blood on his hands but I also think there may be another issue here which is like the autonomy of these organizations and the way they've amassed so much power for themselves yeah absolutely I do think it's really important to think about also just like the ways that these systems are set up to function the same way across administrations um, yeah. mm. so that the, it's harder to make changes like that. Um, and, you know, that sort of can help us think about, like, what could Biden actually be doing or what could a president do to improve this? Um, for example, getting rid of ICE would be a great start, um, <laughs> which is something that Biden's new proposed immigration bill does not do. So I, I think that, like, that's a really good point that like ICE also just has way too much power. Mm -hmm. So another immigrant rights issue that Biden has already been disappointing on is detention centers for children. Um, last week, folks may have seen there were reports about the first immigration detention facility for kids opening under the Biden administration. Um, just to be clear, this is not actually the first facility that's holding children. There are still a lot of other shelters where children are being held, but it's the first temporary border facility that had opened under Trump to be reopened under Biden. Um, and while Biden has taken some steps towards reducing family separation, his current policy basically gives prosecutorial discretion. So it means that prosecutors and judges get to choose whether they will prosecute border crossings in a way that leads to family separation. Um, so it's far from a ban on family separation and it really remains to be seen how much improvement this will actually lead to. Um, personally, I've also just been disappointed to see even the most left-wing Democrats just immediately kind of backtracking on their opposition to locking up children. Um, I have mixed feelings about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but during the Trump administration, she was a pretty important voice bringing opposition to immigrant detention centers into the mainstream. Um, she tweeted about how these facilities are concentration camps, visited detention facilities, and helped bring attention to the horrifying conditions there. Um, again, I really think this is kind of the bare minimum of what a politician should be doing in this type of case. But, you know, it's not like she even explicitly called for these facilities to be closed. But given the hellscape that we're living in, I felt lucky when she tweeted that, that at least a national politician was openly naming how horrifying these conditions are, um, which unfortunately we rarely the see. The bar is low. <laughs> yeah, the bar is on the floor. Yeah. Um, but since Biden has taken office, AOC has already started to walk back that rhetoric. Um, after the reports of Biden reopening this temporary detention facility, she first tweeted, this is not okay, no matter the administration or party, um, which is still, you know, somewhat strong language. But then someone asked her on Twitter, like, what should we do about this? And she responded, like, 
oh, these facilities need to be licensed and like maybe the most egregiously unsafe ones should be closed or we should like consider closing them. And she also called them influx facilities instead of concentration camps, um, which is a pretty stark difference. So overall, I just think this bodes very badly for how even more conservative Democrats are going to react. I think we're going to see a lot of powerful people like politicians, Democratic donors, um, who were very against family separation and caging children when it was Trump doing it, just like completely forget about this or actively try to justify these policies now that it's Biden who's responsible for it. Yeah. And if like Dems on Twitter are a bellwether, it's like, like you said, Julia, not going to be good. It was such a cursed day on the bird site when news broke that Biden was reopening that Trump camp. Like, I just, there are people who are like, well, my parents grounded me when I was a kid. I guess that means they violated my human rights. Or like, this oh camp is God. just as nice as the middle class home I grew up in, which like, just fuck every single person who makes those arguments. It it like literally makes me sick to my stomach. Um, and I do think that there is a question that people ask or can ask in a well-intentioned way, which is like, if kids come across the border, like, what are we supposed to do with them? And obviously, you know, I'm not a policy expert, but I will say that most of the children who come into the U.S. have a destination in mind, like extended family, for example, who already live in the United States. So help them get there, you know, buy a plane ticket or a train ticket or a bus ticket for them. And if people truly do not have a place that they're planning to go, which again is like rarely the case, then why not like put them up in a hotel, for example, instead of a fenced in detention center? And if you're like, oh, no, but like, what if they disappear and then they don't show up for their hearings? Well, like, good for them. Like, they shouldn't be subjected to that anyway. But like, putting them in camps is so very clearly not the way to go. And that was obvious to liberals when it was Trump who was doing it. Right. Yeah. Once again, thinking about how peaceful life must be when your brain is made out of jello and not the first <laughs> object that is oh my between gosh. my brain cells. Anyway, <laughs> um, wanted to talk about some reproductive justice uh, or lack thereof happening under Biden. Similarly to what Julia said um, about immigration, Biden has rolled back some of the most egregious of Trump's bans. Um, he issued a presidential memorandum that reversed three Trump-era restrictions to abortion access. So the first is the Protecting Life and Global Health Policy, also known as the Global Gag Rule, which was implemented, I'll say re-implemented during Trump's first day, first full day in office. This policy bans U.S. funding going to support foreign organizations that use either U.S. funding or their own funding to quote unquote, engage in any abortion related activities that includes counseling, referrals to, or advocacy for legal services, safe services, which doesn't only affect access to abortion, which like would be bad enough, but it also targets organizations that offer any other reproductive health care if abortion or even just like counseling that might mention abortion is part of what they offer. And this is part of a long going back and forth um, along, pretty much along party lines, That's been happening long before Trump. Um, Enemy of the podcast, Ronald Reagan, implemented (laughs) the first uh, what is essentially the global gag rule in 1984 called the Mexico City policy. And since then, it's 
gone back and forth. Um, it's been in state for 21, been in effect for 21 of the past 36 years. The only exception to the like party line statement is that another enemy of the pod, Bill Clinton, maybe you've heard of him during his second <laughs> term implemented a like lighter version of this. I hate that. Um, <laughs> I, I guess we have like one example here of Biden doing the absolute minimum, which like in my book means don't be Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton. So Thanks, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Very, Whoa. very bare minimum. <laughs> there is an act that was recently introduced um, in end of January, early February into the House and Senate called the Global Her Act. Damn. Her is capital. So maybe it's like Global H-E-R. Either way, like weird name. Hate um, to see it. But its aim is to per- like have a more permanent repeal on the global gag rule. Um couldn't really find anything if Biden's like said that he supports it or not. Also, like doubtful it would pass the House and Senate, but it's out there. Um, you can follow. You can let me know. I didn't want to keep researching this. <laughs> you can email us if you find out more information. Then the second aspect of the memorandum was to order agencies to take the necessary steps to restore funding for the United Nations Population Fund, which provides care for pregnant people as well as um, for victims of gender-based violence. And those funds have been blocked since an order from the U.S. Department of State in 2017. And then the third part is revoking the compliance with statutory program integrity, a.k.a. the domestic gag rule, which places restrictions on healthcare providers in the Title X program. Um, Title X, if people don't know, is a federally funded, quote unquote, like family planning program that ensures access to reproductive health care for low income people. And this rule eliminated the requirement for doctors to give, among other things, uh, neutral and factual information to pregnant people regarding their options. So it, it meant that like, yeah, places didn't have to tell people that abortion was an option or didn't have to give like factual information about how abortion works. And also in terms of the memorandum, like merely removing this bans doesn't make an impact on its own. Like organizations still have to like advocate to get funding. It's not like, oh, Biden repealed this and now like magically access is restored um, <laughs> by any means. <laughs> uh, Libs are very excited about this. I even saw Planned Parenthood being like, woo, Biden. And I was just like, I mean, we know Planned Parenthood, like the organization has like questionable politics. Um, the clinic's right. obviously very helpful. Stand going to Planned Parenthood. But yeah, like since the beginning, very questionable right. uh, people in charge. But anyway, <laughs> um, There are also a number of things that Biden has yet to do that would increase access. Like, right, these things are completely bare minimum, just like take back some very extensive bans, but there's still so many bans in place. Um, One example of that is the Hyde Amendment, which um, Biden has historically supported allegedly during that campaign. I think he said he didn't support it anymore. That's like unclear. Yeah, and the Hyde Amendment essentially bans the use of federal funds to help cover abortion costs, which means that people on Medicaid would have to pay out of pocket. Another thing um, that Biden has not done anything about is the refusal of care rule, which allows for people to restrict access to contraceptions and abortion based on religious or moral objections. Um, Basically, there's like endless state restrictions, as we talked about on the abortion access episode and yeah so far he's done very little yeah um this is a total side note since we're talking about reproductive health but i just wanted to share my mom told me a story last night about a a guy named scott 
we hate him, that he she went to medical school with, who told a female resident that she was going to hell because she believed that doctors should offer abortions. Um, Fuck him. Yeah. So anyway, that guy's a cardiologist now, which like, I guess is good because it means like he's not an OBGYN and he's not like obstructing people's ability to access reproductive health care, but like also misogyny poisons your ability to practice medicine in any capacity. So like, it's really shitty. He's a doctor at all. Anyway, total tangent. Um, just like, you know, since we're talking about enemies of the pod today, Scott, if you're listening, you are an enemy of Seas with the Bitch. Scott, we hate you. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to mention that Biden could, but most likely will not do to increase access to abortion would be to repeal whatever that are. Is it are you like rule 486? Is that how you say that? I have no fucking <laughs> I don't know how the government works. That. Do I seem like someone that knows how the government works? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> If you um, know, if you think you know how the government works, you honestly don't, though. <laughs> Are you hyphen four eight six? No, I'm not. Sorry. <laughs> uh, good. Got it. <laughs> what is this word? Anyway, what it does is put restrictions on mifepristone, um, which is the only FDA approved drug for. Uh, first-term abortions, which are accounts for about 39% of abortions. Um, and like, especially in the time of COVID, that would like really increase access because even you, you can do like telemedicine, do the prescription, you can do it at home safely. Um, but of course, Biden does not actually want to increase access, which is clear from all of his previous stances. And yet somehow Planned Parenthood still like gives him high ratings. Literally makes no sense. No, of course. No. <laughs> I'm just imagining <laughs> saying the name of that drug in an Italian accent. Like, me for Pistoni. Okay, so coming up on the end here uh the one of the things we also wanted to talk about was the failure of the biden administration to get life-saving economic relief through stimulus packages um so most people including myself have not received their second stimulus package yet a lot of people haven't received their first stimulus package yet i have Uh, not been stimulated whatsoever so far yeah well that i just yeah I like submitted stimulation the thing or for Zoe. Stimulation for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's clear he isn't willing to use any sort of executive power to help working class people. Yeah, I also just wanted to like talk about the backpedaling that the administration did in the amount the stimulus checks should be. Like, I think before Biden was elected, after he was elected, like prior to the release of his package, he was saying like. I said, I said his package. Ah, good lord. <laughs> I can't <laughs> I would like to imagine Biden as like full Ken doll. I, <laughs> I would like to not imagine Biden at all. Yeah. <laughs> also that. Me muting Biden on Twitter and seeing a million Biden, t- Biden takes a day. I would oh. not like. I wish I could just. All right. So he said multiple times like throughout his campaign and even after being elected before the stimulus package was released that he would send out $2,000 checks, like checks for $2,000, which then morphed into, oh, we are going to send $2,000 total to the American people, which is why the checks are now $1,400 because they were saying like, oh, you already got the 600. 
we're giving you 2000 total. And it's like, no, we wanted $2,000 checks. And it's kind of sad to just even think about people asking for $2,000 from this administration during a pandemic that has lasted an entire year already. And because like, of the failed way the U.S. government has handled yeah, it. Right. Like, they won't give us $2,000 for this whole thing. And, like, it's just another example of, like, the half measures this, the party, the administration is taking. And this also just came out today. Like, I saw this article, like, an hour before we recorded. But they further winnowed who could be eligible for the $1,400 stimulus so that now it's calculated that around 12 million Americans no longer qualify for it. So the way it was before, this is like numerical, but I'm just going to, this is the most numbers I'll say in a long time. Um, (laughs) So before it was like already tiered so that individuals making up to $75,000 and couples earning up to $150,000 per year, they would qualify for the full $1,400. And then that would scale down to zero so that like people who made like individuals who made more than a hundred thousand dollars and couples who made more than two hundred thousand dollars a year would not qualify for this stimulus at all. And the Biden administration just further narrowed that so that now individuals making more than eighty thousand and couples making more than one hundred sixty thousand dollars no longer qualify. So those are the twelve million Americans who no longer qualify for this fourteen hundred dollar check. There's no reason why they had to do this. It's just another example of austerity politics that they're just going to continue to release like over and over. Exactly. We hate to do it, but to end end the episode on maybe the one thing we can say that is a good Mm -hmm. thing that this administration has done um, is that he is working with Johnson and Johnson for emergency production and distribution of um, their newly approved vaccine by the FDA. So Johnson and Johnson said they could make enough of the product, but they wouldn't have the ability to package all of them for emergency distribution. So the Biden administration, Biden pushed through government funded packaging and distribution so that all adults, quote unquote, whatever the fuck that means, should be vaccinated by the end of May, which, if true, is a a big win. Yeah, we love to see that. I do. I do think like and this is not like correcting or at all, just adding on to what you were saying, like. It's important to pay close attention to his language because he's saying there will be enough vaccines for all adults by the end of May, but like not necessarily that they'll all be distributed or like everybody will actually be vaccinated by then. So like, you know, for listeners, don't like count your chickens too soon. There's still plenty of opportunities for the government to fuck this up. But that said, I totally agree with Laura that this is like incredibly exciting and it also means importantly that we are one step closer to each member of the SOTB crew giving each other exactly one pleasant smooch <laughs> one pleasant smooch um yeah and just one to- smooch with the like <laughs> wink meme yeah I'm like what are we talking about one smooch <laughs> <laughs> smooches smooches for everyone as many continual as they smooch want. fast just everyone's mouths pressed together in a circle. Oh my god! <laughs> it's very normal. It's very Can't normal wait. behavior. Normal behavior. But the thing is, once we're vaccinated, we fucking deserve that shit. That's like, so it's true. It's been so goddamn so long. I'm gonna kiss the shit out of all of you. Can't cannot wait. Um, Consensually, obviously. <laughs> if you don't want me to, that's fine. 
<laughs> anyway, moving or on. Have consent. Just to just to like end. <laughs> Speaking for myself. <laughs> just just to end on a bit of a meme. Um, another good thing that has happened is that the administration finally dropped its push to get Nira Tandon a job. Um, if you know somehow you don't know, Nira Tandon is um, arguably the worst person on the internet, just like a complete hack, and has, in the words of one lawmaker at her confirmation hearing, quote, called Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut. That's my attempt <laughs> to copy his accent. That was pretty um, good. I don't know what he you, sounds like, but I just like that so accent. <laughs> <laughs> if you come for Kellen on this accent, you will have to deal with all of us. So. <laughs> um, and of course, like people are blaming Bernie Sanders for this, like somehow, despite the fact that Joe Manchin is literally the reason that this nomination had to be dropped because he was like, fuck, no, I'm not working for this. But I did see somebody on Twitter today blaming Bernie Sanders for ruining <laughs> Women's what? History Month <laughs> oh, <my laughs> because God. of the nearest handed thing. Um, Bernie Sanders anyway, is the only man who any of us can stand at this point, right. to be honest. <laughs> but as I also saw on Twitter, like somebody did Sorry, say, like, just kidding. you know, no, I mean, it's kind of true. Um, I looked know, maybe... at the people dating men and I was like, I don't mean to say that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they know where they stand compared to Bernie Sanders. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so compared to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> you have to see it. So congratulations to the Biden administration for dropping Nira Tandon. Um, maybe she can learn how to code. I think our Kirby shirts should just say, like, I'm an ignorant slut. Season of the Bay. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> just, like, Kirby with, like, a speech oh bubble that says, I'm an ignorant slut. Oh with, like, maybe, like, a knife or something. <laughs> yes. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Hammer and sickle tattoo across the whole stomach slash body oh God, area. Yes. I would draw that. I would yes, draw it. I'm so I don't know why I offered. I'll just draw. Please, please. Someone needs perfect. to draw this. Ugh. Okay. If you want to draw it, you can, or you can subscribe to our Patreon. <laughs> Patreon. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pay us so that you can draw it. <laughs> <laughs> I was, why, I was like, like why if, would they if you can help us make this happen like contact us oh follow us on twitter <laughs> and instagram okay. i literally went the for bee. the yeah that makes sense <laughs> I'm dead. i love it though i like this like um i don't know tradition of like trying to sneak it in at the end i know like well, you started it. Y'all are okay. good. Just keep going. I'll keep going. I, okay. Um, yeah. So if if you can make <laughs> this drawing happen. baby noises. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't realize I, I was here, noise. but. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Um, but, yeah, if, if you can make this Kirby shirt happen, um, please send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Season of the Bee. Slide into our DMs. Um, if you dare. You can, yeah, it, exactly. Um, you can also visit our website, seasonofthebee.com. And if you like what you hear, which of course you do, you can give us money on Patreon at patreon.com slash seasonofthebitch. Um, and if you do that, you can also join our Discord and our reading group. Um, we have a lovely community there 
of truly amazing humans. Um, and, you know, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, etc. You know the drill. You know the fucking drill. Yeah. If you, if you think don't we should now, make a season you know. of the B TikTok, let us know. Oh my God. I'm yeah, prepared. please. <laughs> I love right, you all so much. It. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you.